such a great blessing for us to be together on the first of the week, to be remembering what God has done for us so powerfully as we think about the resurrection of Christ and all he suffered for our sake. What a blessing to be able to remember that together, to be able to sing praises to this good God that we serve, who's called us to be his children, and to join our voices and our hearts together as we do that. I'm thankful for those who are visiting with us today. We're grateful to have you with us. Uh, It's always encouraging. I'm grateful for those who have the ability to be online with us today. I know several of ours are out sick today. We're prayerful for you that you'll recover and be able to be with us as soon as possible. We're prayerful that God will keep you encouraged and serving Him and focused on Him where you are. Uh, And we're grateful for those who may be joining us for the first time, others who may be with us listening to this later on. We're prayerful that these lessons will help you to understand better who God is and how you can serve Him. Uh, He deserves our praise and all glory. In John chapter 4, it's such a, a touching moment. You've got this woman who is thinking it's a bit strange that this Jew would be speaking to her. First, she's shocked just by that, that this Jewish man is speaking to her, a Samaritan, as he's resting at this well. And then he tells her something overwhelming about her own life. He has just told her to get her husband so he can come and hear about this living water that he wants to give her. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And he begins to tell her about her life. You rightly said you don't have a husband. You have had five husbands, he says in verse 18. And the one whom you now have is not your husband either. In that you spoke truly. And her response is, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. But it's interesting that she doesn't stop there. (laughs) Can you imagine what it must have been like for the Jews when John the Baptist came, prophesying from the wilderness? It had been over 400 years since there had been a new revelation from God. And they were waiting for this moment that Malachi had prepared them for when one would come in the spirit spirit of Elijah and would turn the hearts of the sons of the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the sons and would bring in this great day of the Lord. They were waiting for that. The Samaritans perhaps not as much, but they understood that there had been this gap of revelation from the Lord. And she, even though her life is a mess, in some way is thinking of the things of God. And she hears this man who can speak to the things that are in her heart. Only God knows the things that are in her heart? Who is this Jew who's just traveling through to know these things about her life? And so as she perceives that he's a prophet, there are deeper questions that need answers. And she says, where should we be worshiping? You're a prophet. So is it supposed to be on this mountain? I finally found someone who can answer my question. You Jews say it's in Jerusalem, but our fathers told us Mount Gerizim. And so who's right? And his response may have been perhaps shocking to her as well. He told her God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. He revealed something about the nature and the character of God so that she would understand better about what worship is. appreciate so much the lessons Grady's presenting on the Holy Spirit. We need these lessons so much. When we understand God's spirit nature, we can relate to him better. We can understand him and come to him as we ought to. It's interesting to me that the first mention of God in the Bible is as spirit. In Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, we have God the creator, and we're told in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Isn't it interesting that God presents himself to us the very first time in the Bible as spirit? I believe there's good reason for that. 
Think about the first time he appears before Moses in that burning bush. There's sort of a spiritual reference there. It's a fire, but it's not actually burning the bush. That's why Moses went near. He'd seen bush fires before, certainly, out in the desert. But this is strange. And so he goes near, and a voice comes from the fire and says, I am the Lord. This is holy ground. Take off your sandal. And he has this encounter with God with sort of this spiritual revelation, this flame that's not really a flame. (laughs) And then the first time that God's people meet him, in the column of fire by day, in the, col- the column of fire by night, and the column of cloud, the pillar of cloud by day. But in Deuteronomy 4, when Moses describes their encounter on the mountain, I think it's interesting that they're on, on Mount Gerizim, and she's got a question about Mount Zion. And uh, the first time the people really meet God as he speaks the law to them is at Mount Sinai. Mountains are a prominent uh, place in the Bible. But I love what is said here, Deuteronomy 4, as God reminds them through Moses of the generation before, when they met him at Mount Sinai and how he appeared before them. Deuteronomy 4, verse 15. Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people and inheritance as you are this day. Isn't that interesting that he calls their attention to the fact that he gave them nothing really to look at? There were thunderings and lightnings and there was fire and there was smoke and there was this thick cloud of darkness. It was foreboding. But if I ask you to draw uh, a, a pillar of smoke, every one of us would draw something a little bit different. There's no exact pattern for that. If I ask you to draw a flame, all of us would draw something a little bit different. It'd be similar, but they'd be different. There's no real body to a flame. God intentionally appeared that way so they wouldn't be tempted to worship something. If he had appeared as a golden calf on top of that mountain, they already had struggles with that. If he had appeared as a, as a shining man, an angel perhaps, they, they've had problems with wanting to worship men. He gave them no form so they wouldn't be tempted to copy his form and then worship that and sell him short, worshiping something that's not him. So as he lists all of the things of creation, even the stars of the heaven, he says, none of those, but the Lord brought you out of Egypt. He, his person, him. And he wanted you not to be tempted to worship something else. Moses saw that, God saw that through Moses as something important for their understanding before they go into the promised land where they're going to live in worship to God. They need to understand his spirit nature and not a physical idea of him. And that's where Jesus is with this woman at the well. The true worshipers will worship God in spirit and truth because God is spirit. She's worried about places. She's worried about even form and function. There is a place and there is form and function. Those things are involved, but those are symptoms of getting worship right. They're not what caused the worship to be right. I want us to think about that for a moment. The worship must begin in the spirit of the one who is connecting with God's spirit, 
when we understand that God is spirit, we won't try to approach him in carnal ways. And until we understand that he's spirit, the best we're going to be able to do is approach him in carnal ways. God is spirit and he's seeking for true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. So he's not physical and he shouldn't be sought or worshipped in primarily physical ways. But the truth is, most people think of God physically. It's interesting, sort of a a, a between-the-lines reading, if you will, in Romans chapter 1. When the corruption of worship comes, where do men turn? Romans 1, we'll start at verse 18. This is a very familiar text for us because I use it a lot. But Romans 1, 18 through 25, look at what the corruption leads to. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible, that is his spiritual attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible, that is, spiritual, heavenly God, into an image made like corruptible, physical, fleshly, corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God, his spirit nature, for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature, part of physical reality, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The distortion comes when we begin to look at other things, even ourselves, even our own ideas, if we want to get really abstract. But we look at these things that are earthbound, that are earthly, that are shortchanging who God is, and we begin to worship those. The truth is that most people think of God in some physical kind of sense when God begins showing us himself spiritually. (laughs) Now, I know in our day and age, when we think of God, automatically we get an image of Jesus, a man. But as we've been talking about even this morning, he was so much more than that. (laughs) He was the embodiment only of something that was greater, of someone who was greater. He took on human flesh to relate to us and to overcome death by dying himself by taking on what we have to suffer so he could take that burden from us. But it doesn't mean that God is a man in the physical sense. Paul corrected the error of the Athenians. They, uh, these Athenian pagans were trying to worship God according to uh, man's likeness and according to things made by the hands of men. This is the, the way that the corruption goes. We turn from something spiritual and we focus on something physical. We can do it in so many ways. We might even do it with a church building. We might even do it with the church. It's possible. We might do it with the Bible. Worshiping these things instead of worshiping God. These are tools. These are helps in our finding God and worshiping God. But if we worship them instead of God, we've made this same kind of exchange. But in Acts 17, uh, Paul has encountered in Athens all these statues to all the different gods that are possible. And in case they forgot one, a statue to the unknown God. And he says, I want to proclaim that unknown God to you. Starting at verse 24 of Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, 
and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord, in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Why do we do that? Why do we corrupt the image of God by trying to make him into something lesser? And yet, that's what we do. God is spirit. Unfortunately, what happens a lot of time is many people call spiritual something that is actually physical. And sometimes we can, we can fool ourselves into thinking we're being spiritual. So often, and we're talking about this some in Grady's lessons, is we, can, we confound emotions with the spirit led me to do this or the spirit made me feel this way. Emotions, I want to talk just on a base level. Emotions are a physio, that is physical as the root, physiological reaction to certain stimuli. So that emotions become very inconstant. They change as the stimuli change. Emotions are a part, a natural part of our natural bodies. God gave us emotions and he gave them for a good reason. But they're physical, they're carnal, they're part of this existence. We can use them in our worship. We can use them in support of our, of our reaching to God and attaining to God. It's part of what he gave us. But they should never be our guide. And we cannot confuse emotions with the spirit. Emotions are part of our physical selves. It's a physiological reaction. I want to explain that. Think about if you listen to sad music. The other night, Christopher and I had an opportunity to listen to uh, Tchaikovsky perform live. Actually, there was a Prokofiev suite that was performed before that. It was very moving. Uh, it was about the life of some general. I can't remember his name now, but it was very moving in some parts because of the sadness. And it moves you. <laughs> sad music changes the way that you feel. You can watch a movie. Uh, my mom is online, but I'll, I'll throw her under the bus. for We can't watch a movie with her without her crying. Every other scene, there's something she finds to cry about. Movies can move us to tears. Sports can do that too, especially this year if you're a Steelers fan. It's hard. It's hard sometimes. People get emotional during games, don't they? What about happy music, though? And it uplifts your spirit, as they would say. It changes your mood. You go to a concert, and people do crazy things at concerts. People do crazy things at parties they wouldn't normally do. And sort of sometimes get in trouble doing crazy things, doing things that are really crazy because they've been caught up in this mood of the moment. Mood changes, emotion changes, depending on the stimulus that's coming in. And what happens is if you're at a rock concert or at a football stadium, you would never say, the spirit moved me. You would say, I got caught up in the emotion. Those refs were all cheaters, whatever it is. But if you're in a church building and the sad music moves you to, to repent or the happy music moves you forward to go do something that you wouldn't normally do, there may be some sort of a use somewhere in that. But if that is your guide, that is not worship. And it's certainly not the spirit of God moving you. It is an emotional response. And the psychology behind music is well understood. And those who move people by music, well understand what they're doing. God invented music. God has given us words to sing. And talented people to write words that, that have us thinking about who he is. The songs we sang today are moving songs. 
But I hope you're more moved by what they're saying to you, what we're saying to each other, because that is the command, than by the way they sound because of their music. We need to be careful about that. The music affects our emotions. We are commanded to exhort one another. I say that mostly because there is a huge difference between emotional joy and sorrow and true or spiritual joy and sorrow. It's exciting when you see the cop with his lights on behind you. In a good way, no. It's emotional. And you're sorry all of a sudden that you went through those last three red lights or you were doing 95 and a 55. All of a sudden, oh, you're really repentant about that because the cop lights are on behind you. But you were fine while they weren't on. There's a difference between godly and worldly sorrow and emotional and spiritual joy and sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 through 11. Paul wanted them to repent, and he believes they did, in a godly way. I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, this is 2 Corinthians 7, 9, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. They were not only moved by some momentary fear or momentary uh, sorrow from Paul's letter, they considered what it said and they allowed their sorrow to, to provide real repentance. That was godly sorrow. In Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. I think it's interesting, uh, some of the things that Paul juxtaposes. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's interesting how that is so often an emotional appeal to get through some momentary thing. Paul is talking about learning to discipline himself in Christ so that at whatever situation comes up, he has a baseline he can work from as he worships the Lord in joy, in sorrow, in sadness, in sickness, in health. He can do it all things through Christ. It is a godly joy. In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, strangely, Peter and John and perhaps some of the other apostles had been beaten for preaching Christ when they were told not to. And this is such a, a foreign, perhaps, idea to us. They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Nobody rejoices at a beating. <laughs> They did. They found joy in understanding that they're speaking a truth that others were unwilling to receive. It didn't make it any less true. There was a stimuli present. There was a beating. It was not an emotional reaction. It was real godly joy that caused them to respond the way they did. It was constant even in affliction. I want to talk about something that might be a little bit uh, controversial, hopefully not too badly. But signs... Spiritual gifts 
are a physical manifestation of God's spiritual power over the physical universe he created. I want us to understand that. They point to his spirit nature. The physical sign is like an active parable. That's the best way I've heard it described. The parables have a physical story that tells really a spiritual meaning. The, the miracles were like living versions of that. He did something physical. Jesus would do something physical or one of the prophets would do something physical to prove the spiritual nature behind what was going on. Jesus healed a leper to prove he could heal sin. He specifically healed a lame man after he told him his sins were forgiven. And he said, I do this so you can see that I do have power on earth to forgive sins. He did the physical to prove the spiritual. Sometimes the carnal, the physical desire for seeing a sign or getting some spiritual gift is often mistaken as a really spiritual sort of employment. I'm, I'm looking for spiritual gifts. I'm looking for signs from God. And there, that language is so prevalent in our society. I want God just to show me something. Or I felt like God was telling me something or showing me something. We talked about that even recently in our talk about the, the Holy Spirit. And that's seen often as that's the mark of a really spiritual person. They see signs everywhere they go. God's just always talking to them. Really? Or is there something carnal in that? Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. This is surely was shocking to those who heard it. Sometimes it's shocking to us. Shocking to those who are uh, spending most of their time looking for some sort of a sign from God. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to him, religious people, testing him. They asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites! You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. I think it's interesting in Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, he talks about being their father, and they've seen enough evidence that he's their father. If you're asking for a sign that this is really from God, then you're saying, I don't recognize God. When he's done something that's clearly from him, in the case of what Jesus was doing, later on in John 8, he'll say, I'm speaking a language you don't understand. I talk like God talks, you talk like your father, the devil, and so we can't understand each other. If you ask the father for proof that he's really your father, and get a paternity test done, then it just shows maybe you're children of adultery. That's what Jesus said here. You're an adulterous generation. You're from other, another mother then. You don't have a, you're not, I'm not your father. <laughs> there was some physical desire, some carnal desire. Jesus had done so many signs. In fact, in the context of Matthew chapter 16, he had just finished feeding the 4,000, and many of them were present for that. What an amazing sign he did, showing who he was. The good shepherd, in essence. He had seen them as sheep without a shepherd, so he began to teach them. They got hungry, and he fed them. <laughs> he had done so many signs as proof. He had given them his word over and over as proof. He spoke the things of God. They didn't want to hear it. They rejected it. <laughs> but he had given them so much proof, and yet they said, well, just show us one sign, just one more. And he said, no. Because here's what they did. They rejected the word of the Spirit, that that he was speaking that came from God, in favor of some one more physical sign, even at the cross. Come down, O Christ, come down from the cross, and then we'll believe. <laughs> of course they wouldn't. If he had come down, certainly they wouldn't believe. Then he wasn't the Christ. But they wanted something, just something more. It's amazing that people who seek for signs are never satisfied with the signs that come. They always want one more. In our experience in Brazil with people that were sign seekers, and they would see all kinds of signs. They would see crazy things. I mean, 
amazing things. And then they would say, well, just one more. <laughs> and I, just one more thing. One guy that, that came to one of our studies said, I've been seeing this, this meeting all week, and they're casting out demons every single night. He said, I couldn't believe it. You know, 20, 30 people a night, they're casting out demons. But I want to know why this one guy that went, they couldn't cast the demon out. That's what I wanted to know. Why that one? <laughs> so even though he'd seen all these things that are meant to bring him to belief, because one, he didn't see, that's the one that, was, that he was tripped up on. It's a carnal way of thinking. God has given us overwhelming evidence and proof of who he is and of what he's done. The book of Isaiah today, he called their attention back to Abraham, called their attention back to Egypt. He kept calling their attention back to how many times he'd proved himself, himself before them. And they were unwilling to listen so often. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the great uh, treatise on spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 12. Since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, he said, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. If you want spiritual gifts, seek them for the right reason and seek them for the excellence of their use before the Lord. The truth is the Sadducees and Pharisees by this point, they already had God's word, the gospel. They already had God's word through Moses later on uh, in the, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Find out that Abraham says, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him. If they're not willing to listen to him, even if one were to come from the dead. They wouldn't listen. <laughs> that would be the great sign. But if you're not willing to listen to what God's already said, you're going to reject the cross also. Whew. That's an amazing thing to think about. The cross is proof of all that God had already said. It's the ultimate proof. <laughs> but if you're not willing to listen to all that God had said pointing up to the cross, why would you listen to the cross? You don't believe in God anyway. You've rejected him. You've rejected the Spirit's revelation in favor of just one more thing that you can see in your generation. We need a sign for our times. I've heard that preached before. We've got the sign we need. It was the sign of the prophet Jonah. It was Jesus resurrecting after the third day. 1 Corinthians 14, 12, they were carnally desiring spiritual power. That's why they were fighting amongst each other. Even the ones who had, quote unquote, the gifts were fighting and using them improperly because they were thinking carnally, not spiritually. And so we need to be careful about our seeking for spiritual gifts and signs. God has given us the greatest spiritual gift. Let's use it properly. Simon sent in Acts chapter 8 as he was enthused watching the apostles as they were doing these signs. They were doing miracles. He wanted to buy that particular gift. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul had said with their carnality over these, these uh, spiritual gifts, they were acting worse than unbelievers. He said the tongues are a sign not for the believers, but for unbelievers. Don't be children in your understanding. Sometimes... It's not that people are caught up in uh, seeking for what is spiritual, but it's actually physical. Sometimes men just honor men's laws and traditions above God's word. And that's a way that we dishonor his spirit nature. We think, well, he's just like one of us. You know, he, he made the word and he's just a guy like us, so maybe he was wrong. He just gave some good ideas, but you know, our modern world has changed. So we'll take the base of those ideas and build on them for our modern life. That is creating a tradition of men in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus fought with the, the Pharisees over that very practice. They were holding up their traditions and had changed the traditions of God. I want to look at verses 17 through 20, his explanation there. Do you not understand, this is Matthew 15, 17 to 20. Do you not understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts 
murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. It's interesting, the last thing on that list is blasphemies. The first thing on that list is evil thoughts. And I believe the intent there is, as they've created these false doctrines, it's come from the evil of their own minds and their own hearts. They haven't listened to God. They all build up to these blasphemies when they're teaching men to follow traditions instead of God's word. We need to be careful with that. The Pharisees looked really spiritual. They were carnally minded and they were rejecting the spiritual word of God for their carnal interpretations of it. It's interesting that the very context here, they're fighting with Jesus because he didn't wash his hands and neither did his disciples. It's a physical practice. And they have this argument that shows they misunderstood the spiritual principle behind it in the first place. It speaks volumes about how carnal they were. They were so much more upset about his unclean hands than they were about their own unclean hearts. And that's what Jesus pointed out to them. Some place their own wishes above God's commands. It's easy to do that. When we don't think of God as spirit and he needs to reveal, we might think, well, if I like this, then certainly he's going to like it. This is what I want to happen. Sometimes they may be spiritual or religious wishes, this desire for things to go the right way. In Mark chapter 8, as Jesus has been revealing himself to the apostles, finally Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus had asked, who are men saying that I am? Peter says the right things. And then Jesus begins very plainly to tell them that he's on his way to Jerusalem where he's going to be rejected by the religious leadership and he's going to be put to death. And Peter says, not so, Lord, that'll never happen to you. He certainly didn't want it to. Here's a good friend of his. Here is the prophet they've been waiting for. Here's the Messiah. And the religious leadership's going to put him to death? No way that's going to happen. Well, is he the Christ or isn't he? Is he the Son of God or isn't he? Does he know what he's talking about because he is spirit and you are man? Or doesn't he? When we betray our own thinking about what God has revealed, we ought to be saying, get behind me, Satan. This is what God said. This is not, I know that's what God said, but here's the way I'm going to do it. That's what God said. And that's what we need to be doing. He knows it better than we do. In fact, it's a great uh, uh, sign of this age. In Genesis 3, verse 1, when Satan came and began to speak with Eve, he says, Has God indeed said that you may not eat of all the trees of the garden? And he almost quoted what God said when he said, Freely eat of all the trees of the garden. Has God said you may not do that? Well, on a technicality, perhaps, in our postmodern thinking, didn't he say you can eat of all the trees but one? So didn't he say you can't eat of all the trees? I mean, isn't that what that is by reason? Doesn't that reasonably make sense? Wow. It's not what God said at all. He said freely eat. Don't eat this one. But the trees of the garden are yours. And so he began to cast doubt about what God had revealed. And that kind of questioning in even a spiritual or religious way Has God really said that women and men have different roles? How can he be so chauvinistic? (laughs) They have different roles. We can see it clearly. Almost everywhere we go, we can see our differences. We celebrate those. They ought to be celebrated. So much we celebrate them that we think, well, I want to be what the other one was in our society. No. God made distinct roles. He has said, yes, there are roles, and they need to be fulfilled within their roles. (laughs) Has God indeed said that homosexuality will be judged? He has. He says the marriage bed is undefiled between a man and a woman. But fornicators, that includes homosexuality, and adulterers, he will judge. That's Hebrews chapter 13, very clear 
all of that. Sometimes in our society, we pull out one more than the others. Right now, we're offended, perhaps, at homosexuality while fornication and adultery run rampant. But they're all going to be judged. <laughs> it's not one sin is worse than another. And we shouldn't defend one while we uh, uh, berate another. But certainly, God said these things, and we have to deal with those. He is spirit. I am flesh. He knows. I need to listen to him. What about personal wishes? I already mentioned that perhaps Peter didn't want Jesus to die. He's his friend. Um, you think about in Mark chapter 4, uh, verses 18 and 19. We're looking at the, uh, the parable of the sower here. Mark chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. These are the ones sown among thorns. They're the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in, choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. John 15, Jesus said, you need to bear much fruit. That's how you prove that you're my disciples. If you're bound to the vine, you'll bear much fruit. If you're unfruitful, as Jesus speaks of here in Mark 4, it's because there's so many other things that may just sort of get in the way. And they may not even be bad things. The cares of this world, I don't think he's talking about negative things necessarily there. He does say, if we won't feed our family, then we're worse than the unfaithful. <laughs> if we won't take care of our own. There's work that needs to be done. There are things that we just have to be involved in. But those can't be the focus of our lives. And sometimes it becomes very apparent where our lives are focused. I don't have time to study the Bible. When am I going to study the Bible? I've got so much other stuff that I just need to do. Well, what you need to do is serve the Lord. Those other things you ought to be involved in doing, but you need to serve the Lord. In fact, Matthew 6.33 says that's really his, his help. Matthew 6.33, if you'll seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, those other things he'll take care of for you. He wants us not to be distracted by those things so that we can have time to be listening to his word, to be praying to him, to be worshiping. Many times I've heard people come in wailing that they haven't been able to find work, seeking the prayers of the congregation to be able to find a job because they got laid off. They get a job and you never see them again. <laughs> I don't have time for worship. I've got to work. I've got to make up for lost time. Are you seeking first the kingdom of God? Are you seeking first your career? <laughs> heard people say, I'll worry about God once I get my career in order. Really? Who says you're going to have that opportunity? Are you seeking first the kingdom of God or are you seeking first school <laughs> so that you can get your career in order later? Now those things are important. I'm not saying dismiss those things altogether. I'm saying if those are the focus of your life, you've missed it. <laughs> Whatever it is, we need to be fruitful. And our personal wishes cannot carnally override our desire, spiritual desire to be with the Lord. What am I getting at with all of this? The Lord is seeking people to worship Him. That tells us that God, who is spirit, desires a relationship, not the things that we have. He wants us, and He wants all of us. He wants our all. That's why Jesus came, was to restore a broken relationship. He says He brought the ministry of reconciliation. He's reconciling things back to God. I love this description of preaching in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I don't think this is reserved for preachers, for evangelists. I think this is for us. Paul speaking in the context of his work as an apostle, but I believe this has application for all Christians. 2 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. 
Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isn't that beautiful? God has put us into the world now, out of where our home is. You know, you think about the man who, after Jesus cast the demons out, he wanted to get in the boat and go with Jesus. He said, no, I need you to go back and tell those people in Decapolis. (laughs) I've got a work for you to do. Wouldn't it have been much better to be with Jesus? Paul says in Philippians, I'm I'm hard-pressed between two sides. I don't know if I should go on and be with the Lord. It would be better for me, but I need to be here for your sake. And so I think that's probably what's going to happen. (laughs) We've been placed here as ambassadors before the Lord. We represent him. We're strangers from a far country. This is not our home. But you see what happens when we're thinking carnally, this is our home. And the spirit is some sort of a shadow, some sort of a hazy thing. No, God is spirit. And those who are seeking to be with him, that's where they want to be. This is the shadow. The reality's there. God is spirit. And his very point that Jesus makes in John 4, 23 is he's seeking for people to worship him. He wants that kind of a relationship. Did you notice earlier when we read in Acts 17 what Paul said to the pagans of the Areopagus? That God had made from one blood every nation of people to dwell on the earth. He put them where they were and when they were so that they should seek him. Isn't that kind of beautiful? He's seeking us and he's made it so that we can seek him. And that's what he wants to do. He wants a relationship. (laughs) That's what he had in the garden. In the cool of the day, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, he went down to be in fellowship with his creation and they had already eaten and run off and hid. And he said, where are you? And that's what Jesus came to do as well. He came and he tabernacled among us, John chapter 1 says. He came and walked among us because he wanted to prove that God is seeking those who are seeking him. (laughs) It doesn't have to be a lost game of hide and seek. It's a game where God has made it possible through the gospel to be reconciled completely to himself. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He put Jesus on the cross to pay the price for our righteousness that we may become the righteousness of God in him. Not that we are righteous in and of ourselves, but that he may offer to us the righteousness that belongs to Jesus, just like Jesus took the sin that belonged to us. <laughs> what a beautiful blessing. And so as we think about this question of worshiping God in spirit and truth, we ought to be considering if that's where we are. Sometimes we fool ourselves. I've fooled myself many times. where I'm thinking, this is what I need to be involved in. This is spiritual. And then I realize, no, it's just something sort of carnal even at the back of that. I want to do the Lord's will, and I want you to do the Lord's will. I want you to seek him, allow him to be, he's seeking you, and he wants you to find him. Together we can worship God in spirit and truth. If you are not a Christian, if you have not given yourself to the Lord, if you've not confessed that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah, if you've not come before him, repentant of your sins, and been washed in the waters of baptism, you truly can't worship in spirit and truth. You haven't been given that restoration that brings you into the proper relationship with him. That's what he wants. And we want to help you do that today if that's your need. If you're already a Christian, if you already understand what you need to do, but you're struggling to do it well, we want to help you with that as well. Don't get wrapped up in this world. Don't get left behind and be unfruitful and let this world choke out the fruitfulness that God wants. He wants a true relationship with you. He's seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth. If we can help you do that today, 
please let it be known. We're going to stand and sing this song to encourage your decision. <clears throat>